This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. This is part two of the series on effect of smoking tobacco on COVID-19 illness. Today we are joined by Dr. Jay Taylor Hayes and Dr. Robert Vesello, both professors in Mayo Clinic Rochester. Today we are going to have our ongoing conversation about the different aspects of smoking on health, especially when it relates to COVID-19 illness. Welcome, Taylor and Rob. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm just talking about the act of smoking. Of course, if you have to smoke, you have to take your mask out. Um, you have to put a cigarette, light it up. A lot of places, uh, they would share the cigarette in some countries, uh, the poor people sitting together. Is the act of smoking just, just holding the cigarette and handling all these things, sharing cigarettes with others, is there a risk for transmission of the virus just by the act of smoking and doing this? I'll make a comment and then let Rob comment. I think the answer is from a practical point of view on its face, it seems like it would. Certainly sitting in a, in a communal group, unmasked, if you shared a, a hookah mouthpiece, or a cigarette with others uh, where you're directly exposed to respiratory secretions, saliva and, and other secretions, the answer is obviously has to be yes. The act of putting hands to mouth, which we know touching your face, cross contaminates the tissue around the mouth, nose and eyes, which uh, are entry points for the virus, that that ought to be on its face, a risk factor for infection. So, so I think yes, the act of smoking being unmasked, communal relationship, sharing things that have contamination with uh, saliva and other secretions would put you at risk. And Rob may have some other comments on that. Yeah, no, I, I agree fully, uh, Taylor. I, I think one of your things to keep in mind is, um, and one of the reasons why masks are protective is because they limit um, droplet spread from one individual to another. The act of smoking obviously requires that a person be unmasked, but not only that, the person is actively inhaling and exhaling, and in the process of actively exhaling, um, generating um, um, an aerosol. Um, so that, in addition to the fact that, uh, as Taylor uh, mentioned, uh, there is this necessary, you know, contact with the face or proximity of the hands to the face, again, uh, would potentially, you know, introduce yet another uh, mechanism by which um, spread uh, may happen. I, I wanted, Amit, to just make one comment also on, on Taylor's um, answer uh, about uh, specifically maybe nicotine and this issue about nicotine potentially having so-called benefits is really not a new one. This has been around, I think, now for 20 years. And the reason why that argument keeps coming up is because it's been shown now for a long time that uh, nicotine doesn't just affect cells within the nervous system, but nicotine can bind to nicotinic receptors 
that are present on epithelial cells, immune cells, and a whole host of cells in the body. And there's been quite a bit of research done that if you take immune cells and put them in a dish and put nicotine there and then stimulate those cells, whether they're macrophages or T cells or whatnot, that you can dampen immune responses in the presence of nicotine. And so, for example, this was one of the arguments that was used as to why smokers may sometimes have less severe manifestations in inflammatory bowel disease, particularly ulcerative colitis, and that potentially the nicotine was modulating the immune response in the gut and having and providing some benefit. Um, because uh, there are aspects of the severity of illness of COVID-19 that are felt to be crucially linked with hyperactivation of the immune system, then so-called cytokine storm. That has been one of the reasons why some people said, well, listen, if nicotine can have this effect of damping or, or shutting down uh, some of this excessive immune activation, then maybe this would be one way by which we could modulate immunity and prevent that cytokine storm from happening. Quite frankly, that is the same rationale for the use of corticosteroid therapy. And in fact, now just hot off the press, just yesterday, there was a press release from the UK about early data about the use of dexamethasone in hospitalized patients with a severe COVID-19 infection and an improvement in outcome, and particularly in the sickest individuals with COVID-19. Um, so, so there is, you know, quite a bit of biological rationale uh, behind this, but at the end of the day, there is simply no concrete evidence and no proof whatsoever that either nicotine or smoking actually improve outcomes. The one concern too that I would have about even mentioning the fact that nicotine can be beneficial is that some people may understand that as saying, let's go and buy e-cigarettes or start to vape nicotine because that's somehow going to make us less susceptible or less sick from COVID-19. And we know that vaping and e-cigarette use can cause lung injury in and of its own, and in fact has been associated with a number of cases of severe lung injury, some of which has resulted in ARDS and, and intensive care unit admission, and sometimes even death. So just to add a bit you sort of more to that context, yes, there's a lot of tantalizing hypothetical reasons why, for example, nicotine may have benefit, but there's really no clinical evidence whatsoever at this time. So Rob, thank you for bringing vaping into it. And, and of course, there were, even before COVID, we had all these cases of ARDS, but now I, I'm, if I'm a smoker and I come to you, I have, I have the mild form of uh, COVID-19, but then I come to you, I said, can I use the nicotine gum or the patch or other kind of replacement or the high cost, the heat not burns technique? Uh, would that anyway modify what you're saying about nicotine? You've said so many harsh thing about nicotine and I'm a smoker, it hurts my feelings. And really I want to keep smoking. 
um, in the hospital, I can't. So can I apply some of these patches? What is it going to do? Am I going to, can it worsen my illness or would I be continuing to be in the mild state? Taylor? I'll take the first shot of that. Uh, so first of all, I'd say nicotine replacement therapy for uh, the treatment of tobacco dependence for, for smoking cessation. So as an aid to smoking cessation, clearly beneficial. Um, as are the other approved medications, varenicline and bupropion, which are non-nicotine medications. So if someone asked me, um, they either had SARS-CoV-2 infection or were concerned about exposure and getting it, and they were a smoker, and they said, should I quit smoking and can I use nicotine replacement therapy to quit? I would say, absolutely, you should quit smoking. And using nicotine replacement therapy is a very effective way to do it, along with the other things that we always tell people, it's, it's behavioral therapy plus pharmacotherapy that's effective. So that behavioral therapy is quite simply starting to change habits and thoughts around the use of tobacco cigarettes and using nicotine replacement therapy in this case to reduce withdrawal and to reduce urges to smoke. And we know that people who do that have a much greater chance of successful abstinence from tobacco. Uh, if they said, you, you asked a, a very complex question because you also threw in a, another um, form of tobacco, which is called uh, heat not burn or, or heated tobacco product. And although most Americans aren't familiar with this, uh, it is, uh, has become one of the more popular ways to consume tobacco in Japan. Uh, it's made entry into the Middle East for sure. Um, and um, Philip Morris has opened a test market in the Atlanta area for their product called ICOS, I-Q-O-S, which is a heated tobacco product. Heated tobacco products we know very little about. Um, we know that they produce an aerosol. We, we know from only proprietary data from the tobacco industry that the toxicant level in the aerosols appears to be less than in combusted tobacco, the traditional cigarette but we have no long-term data at all on adverse health effects. Uh, we don't know if people successfully quit combusted tobacco use using heated tobacco products. Um, and we don't have any idea whatsoever about the impact of heated tobacco products uh, on SARS-CoV-2 infection rates or the risk for severe or critical illness from SARS-CoV-2. For vaping, we're almost in the same boat because we, with regard to SARS-CoV-2 infection, we don't really know um, whether vaping is a risk factor or not for infection or the development of more severe illness. We do know, as Rob mentioned, that vaping has been associated with lung injury. Um, and we, we also know that the toxicant level in vape, in the aerosol from vaping products, is many-fold less than in tobacco cigarettes. So, um, the complicated answer is um, it might be possible to switch completely from combusted tobacco to one of these uh, presumably less toxic forms of, to of um, nicotine administration like electronic cigarettes, vaping products, or the heated tobacco products. But my advice to my patients is if, if you really want to know the best approach, it's to quit using all tobacco products, including e-cigarettes, vaping products, or heated tobacco products, um, and develop a plan to quit altogether 
I think is the only safe approach, but there's really no good data about the risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection, vaping, or heated tobacco products. Yeah, that's going to be an important uh, data to gather uh, because there's all, already talk about maybe a second, second wave of infection and all, all providers, I'm a primary care provider in internal medicine, so I've started talking uh, actually much more when it comes to nicotine. It's previously my talk would stop with just COPD, chronic, you know, CAD, diabetes, ischemic heart disease, things like that. But COVID-19 COVID and this effects has given us much more uh, um, a different platform to talk and convince patients and hopefully it works as we try to find out how to communicate with patients with these risk factors. But when the patients are coming and we have a history of smoking, uh, should they be treated any other different way than non-smoking COVID-19 patients? Or the treatment should be the similar? I know apart from talking with them, I think one of the things Taylor you said is we need to bring this topic up of nicotine cessation and bringing all this smokeless form or patch and gum and use it as a, as a good segue towards cessation. But apart from that, should there be any other uh, difference in the way we approach these patients who smoke? My first impression is no. I, I think that people who either have SARS-CoV-2 infection or who are at risk for it or may have been exposed, that our response should be, this is an opportunity just like many other opportunities we have with patients. Uh, sometimes they're called teachable moments. And so if a patient's coming asking, recognizing that they may have some risk for a serious respiratory infection, uh, and they happen to also be a smoker, it's the opportunity to say, from all we know, and we've talked about some of the caveats, some of the data that's out there, from all we know, stopping the use of tobacco smoking is one of the best things you can do for your health. And our impression is that you'll be much better off if you stop smoking now. And then we can talk about the effective ways to quit. I would mention only one other thing, and I'll let Rob chime in, is that um, if I had a patient who said, I, I just don't think I want to use nicotine replacement, I don't think it will work for me, I've tried it before, um, but I would like to try e-cigarettes. If, if that was the only way that they were willing to quit smoking, then I would say if you um, will completely stop all combusted tobacco products, use uh, a reliable e-cigarette product, one that's produced probably by, although I never advertised for them, one of the tobacco companies so that you know that the product actually works, not one of these uh, kind of uh, uh, a manufacturer that may not have any reputation for using good manufacturing processes. If you're willing to switch completely, I think it probably would reduce your risk, but I can't guarantee that. My best advice is to quit and to use some of the approved products, one of the pharmacotherapies that is approved. But if there's no other way, I would allow them to switch completely to an electronic product, knowing that it's probably lower risk in the long run, but I can't guarantee them that. Yeah, I, I, I agree fully with Taylor. The only thing, uh, I guess I would reinforce uh, what Taylor said, that uh, when patients ask and they say, look, um, I want to stop smoking, um, but they want to try an e-cigarette, I, I stress the importance of 
using an e-cigarette product that is not one that can be modified after purchase or, or by the time it gets to the patient, the biggest concern is with these e-cigarette products that um, either uh, the individual or a middleman can modify and introduce other components that then uh, get vaped and then potentially can cause um, other types of uh, lung injury. Um, the caveat is, of course, that we're constantly learning about the, uh, the real safety of, uh, of e-cigarettes. And, and fundamentally, the issue is that um, generating an aerosol of nicotine and inhaling it together with a carrier is a very different way of getting nicotine compared to a gum or a patch where nicotine is still getting into the system, but in a very different way. Um, the one other thing I, I would mention is that uh, in terms of approaching patients, uh, smokers with COVID-19 infection, if it's in the hospital setting or even you know in an ambulatory setting, if somebody's an active smoker, Again, I, I would think about, uh, at the very least, having a plan in my mind of counseling them. Have they ever been assessed? Have they ever had a chest X-ray and spirometry to screen for obstructive lung disease? Maybe they have COPD and they don't know. Because if you have somebody that is uh, actively smoking and may not have symptoms, they're they may already have significant COPD. Some of those patients, for example, may have an FEV1 that is already significantly reduced. They just don't recognize it. And uh, doing appropriate testing, even for example, um, recommending to their primary care provider to get spirometry and a chest X-ray might be, again, uh, really useful adjunctive information for that teachable moment where you, know, you can sit down with the patient and say, look, not only do you smoke, but you actually have COPD, you just don't know it. Now is the time to quit because 10, 20 years down the road, you will have lost so much lung function that then the only thing that can happen is you get down the route of transplant and oxygen and so on. So I think for me at least, uh, that would be one other thing that I would suggest uh, because in the context of, of having um, the concern associated with a severe infectious process, that can be also an opportunity to discuss, this is something that you can do to protect your well-being and quality of life uh, in the future. Rob, what you mentioned really works very well in the outpatient setting. In the inpatient setting, when they're hospitalized, we know that the personal protective gear has to be worn. So there's a lot of uh, social distancing, physical distancing, using remote devices to take care of these patients, to minimize contact and using all these personal protective device and even getting a spirometry or, or pulmonary function test in an outpatient. Patients have to, of course, if you're COVID positive, you'll have to wait for them to clear that infection and then do the test. There's so much testing and requirements for additional test and uh, manpower and cleaning that it becomes difficult uh, to do some of the things even when they are in the hospital and they're captive. But if I'm an active smoker, I'm hospitalized. I'm not talking, I'm have like not ICU, but near 
uh, in a ward. In the past, we would send them out and they would take a smoke and come back to the ward. Now we can't do that. They're masking and personal protective device. What do you, the only options they have is patches and gums. Is that what they have? Yeah, so I think in the hospitalized uh, setting, um, it, you know, you, you have the patient there and uh, you, you have um, a lot of time to interact with that patient that in fact you, you might have much more of an opportunity to have discussions regarding health prevention and smoking cessation than sometimes you do in a busy outpatient practice. As you said, um, Amit, uh, now uh, with patients who have active uh, COVID infection, uh, we have implemented or started to use, I think to great effect, new tools to enable provider-patient interactions in the hospital, such as iPads and other means of communication, where, for example, if I wanted to talk to a patient about their smoking and their smoking habits and talk about smoking cessation and strategies and so forth, um, you don't necessarily have to be there in the room with all the personal protective equipment and masks and so forth. You could be outside the room or even in your office connecting uh, with the patient through a secure means and having very meaningful interactions. I think the hospital setting is really key because Many patients are understandably quite concerned. If you have COVID-19 and you're in the hospital, I think most people realize that that can be a very serious situation. But it's precisely, I think, in that context that uh, having those uh, type of interactions and discussions are important. With respect to testing, I also think it's important to keep in mind that testing uh, or a strategy for testing can be done by letting the patient leave the hospital and bringing them back say three or six months after that hospital visit when clearly you know there's no further residual chance of them being infectious even when they come back you know most pulmonary function labs still have a protocol of doing a nasopharyngeal uh, pcr uh, test for for the virus simply because spirometry is an aerosol generating procedure. Um, but if you're bringing them back a few months after active infection, the overwhelming likelihood is that those patients are no longer infective. So it should be safe uh, to bring them back and do testing. But I do think that capturing uh, the, that opportunity to intervene and, and interface and interact with patients uh, in the hospital for uh, smoking cessation is potentially uh, really very important. Ahmed, if I could mention one thing about our hospital, and, and I think other hospitals have the same opportunity, is that we actually have a nursing protocol in place so that the bedside nurse screens every person who comes in for their tobacco use status and offers treatment, including nicotine replacement therapy for those who are active smokers uh, to help reduce withdrawal. And then they, the nurse is able to refer them to one of our tobacco treatment specialist counselors for additional counseling and development of a plan to quit smoking. Again, using the hospitalization as the teachable moment. So it's a systematic way. We were talking about this earlier with the, under the, when we talked about the vital sign, using tobacco use as a part of the vital signs. It's a systematic way to collect tobacco use status 
and to systematically intervene without having to involve the entire treatment team. And the bedside nurse, of course, does that uh, check-in with every patient who comes into the hospital. So it's an opportunity. The last thing I'd say in our hospital, and I think in most hospitals, except in those few hot spots around the country, the vast majority of people who are being hospitalized do not have COVID-19 infection. They, they are being hospitalized for other reasons, often for the, the things that we've talked about here. Chronic cardiovascular disease, uh, chronic lung disease, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, all of which are, are made worse by tobacco use. I like the automatic uh, way it's done. As you said, the nurse checks in and not have the physician. The physician can get the, get, get the vital sign of smoking. That takes away, there's a lot of inertia in the hospital and outpatient setting where these kind of vital uh, patients' habits get lost. And having the system that you mentioned triggering a way of alerting the nicotine services to work at, in, in, at their own pace, uh, in, in complementary to what the doctors are doing, that's going to be huge. And that brings us to the research aspect. So what you said is, of course, uh, is a huge research um, point by itself. But Rob, what kind of research is now being conducted on the numerous issues around COVID-19 and cigarette smoking? I know COVID-19 has just opened up a whole, there are over, um, last I was counting 40,000 articles which have been written in different aspects and not all of them are research. Some are research, some are, some are observation and some are case reports. But what kind of research is possible specifically for COVID-19 and cigarette smoking? So, uh, Amit, there's a tremendous amount of research activity, um, as, as you mentioned, um, but also within the context of understanding the relationship between smoking, smoking-induced diseases, and uh, the pathogenesis and outcome of uh, uh, COVID-19 infection. Um, there are a number of studies that are happening at a very basic molecular level to understand the impact of cigarette smoke on the expression of the ACE2 uh, protein um, in different cell types within the lung and also uh, to identify which constituents or components of cigarette smoke may be uh, the key culprits in inducing that response. There's a lot of work also going on to figure out what the impact of increasing the ACE2 expression has on the binding of the virus to epithelial cells, the internalization of the virus, and the subsequent injury to epithelial cells, and different epithelial cells within the lung, whether they be in the airway or the alveolus. There's work also being done specifically to look at nicotine. As we said, you know, uh, there's all this uh, uh, hypothetical or hypothetical arguments that maybe nicotine may have some putative benefits in the context of COVID infection. And that's led to a number of groups that are looking at either epithelial cells, 
or immune cells like macrophages, for example, within the lung, macrophages are going to be present there in both the um, airways and the alveolar spaces and are sort of the first line or one of the first immune cells to see the virus. How does nicotine impact macrophage activation and, and production of inflammatory factors? There's quite a bit of work going on to look at this, both uh, using cells as well as with relevant mouse models. Um, that's a bit more challenging, of course, because uh, uh, the impact of uh, coronavirus in a mouse is different uh, compared to a human disease. Um, with respect to human trials, um, I'm not aware of actual clinical trials that are looking at uh, products, uh, for example, uh, nicotine products, whether they be delivered through a patch or through an inhaled route and how that potentially might impact things like uh, the duration of um, persistence of viral shedding after established infection or clinical outcomes. I suspect uh, some of those studies uh, will be forthcoming too because uh, there is at least, uh, again, this, this article hasn't been published, it's in a preprint status, but there is a study in vitro using an in silico binding approach that shows that nicotine can potentially compete with the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, for binding to the ACE2 receptor. So uh, there's some, at least again, data coming from in vitro studies that would suggest that if you had to deliver nicotine on epithelial cells that potentially uh, they might outcompete the virus from binding to its receptor. So I'm sure uh, we're going to be seeing uh, a number of those studies that will be uh, forthcoming that will hopefully uh, shed you know, more light on, on the complex relationship between smoking and COVID infection. Yeah, it's good to know the changes, the pathophysiological changes. But of course, uh, as you said, nicotine has so many other ramifications, not only for the ACE inhibitors, uh, I mean, the ACE uh, receptor, but also on the ischemic heart disease and the lung and so many other things that one has to weigh the results of any positive thing which comes up against all the, all the things we have learned over the years. But Taylor, have you seen a spike in the number of patients uh, who don't have COVID-19 right now, who don't have the infection, the symptomatic infection, signing up for in our nicotine dependence clinic for nicotine cessation plans? No, we haven't seen a spike in the numbers because um, we, like every other place, has probably seen an overall decrease in the total number of patients that we've been seeing. We are now seeing uh, um, almost back to our baseline of the number of requests for consultations in the hospital. And um, one of the things that we're looking at, uh, you, Rob was talking about laboratory research, um, but at a very high clinical level, we're looking at, as well as other people, the impact or the efficacy of these remote counseling interventions. Um, how well do they work? We have some studies that were already ongoing that we're now uh, will be publishing soon, looking at things like uh, live chat, 
uh, for intervention with smokers. And we're going to be looking at how effective are the video visits that we have with people who are using tobacco versus our, our typical, you know, before uh, March of this year, we were like everyone else doing face-to-face -face counseling visits. But I think that just like with a lot of other mental health issues that counseling lends itself to a video intervention or perhaps uh, much better than some of the other clinical interventions and clinical interactions that we have with patients. So that we'll be looking at that. Um, I agree, it was not a fair question because our hospital census was low for several months. So it's not a good comparison and I think the next few months or the upcoming, the rest of the year will show uh, whatever knowledge we are gathering, is it helping patients in making the decision to quit smoking? And of course, video consult is a whole new project on what kind of counseling works best with video counseling. Are all components of counseling equally well? Are we able to reinforce and maintain patients? So that'll be a study worthwhile. So I think you're going to be back with our podcast team uh, as we gather those infections. But here, here, here's a question a lot of my patients say, Doc, I don't smoke. Everybody says they don't smoke. I don't smoke, but people around me smoke. So what about secondhand smoking and exposure with COVID-19? Is that a risk factor? We don't know. <laughs> and um, it, it's like a lot of things with COVID-19. You mentioned the number of articles that have been published. Despite all of the publication, there's so many gaps in our knowledge. We do know the secondhand smoke exposure does present risks for the non-smoker who is exposed. We've, we've known for a long time that they have more pulmonary symptoms, that they're more liable for the development of, of uh, measurable changes in lung function. We know that they're at more risk for chronic cardiovascular disease. Uh, we know they're at more risk for developing lung cancer. Uh, these are all things that we've known about for a long time and that's why um, in the United States, at least, we have uh, taken huge steps toward making all indoor spaces smoke-free. So whether or not it presents a risk for COVID-19 disease, whether SARS-CoV-2 infection may be more liable in people who are regularly exposed to secondhand smoke, and are those people more at risk for severe disease, we don't know the answer yet. I think that that is... Uh, some of the analysis we'll need to do on the mountains and mountains of data that are being collected uh, as we get more experience with SARS-CoV-2. And unfortunately, it sounds like we'll have more experience to come. But the Rob probably has some comments as well about secondhand smoke. When you, when you see the huge plume of smoke coming out from somebody's mouth uh, towards you, they say that, you know, we have to keep the six feet distance. Is there any aerosol also there? I mean, is it just smoke? What is the composition? Apart from the nicotine components, is there any element or any kind of aerosols or that's what's supposed to carry the virus apart from the direct damage to the lung from the smoke? I think Rob could comment on that. <laughs> is, isn't that a great question, Amit? So <clears throat> I, I, I was going to echo, you know. Alchemers, like hookah, you know, there are so many yeah. different types. We really take a big, big, you know, I, I grew up in India where I would see these people with hookah and their cheeks would be blowing for a while before they would absolutely blow it out. 
it's it's very different from just a cigarette smoke you know yeah i i agree i agree uh, amit so if you think about um you know some of those patients are in essence doing some of the maneuvers we do in the pulmonary function lab right i mean they're inhaling almost a total lung capacity and then exhaling you know and sometimes exhaling for an extended period of time um, so yeah, I, I, and again, of course, for obvious reasons, they're not masked. Uh, so it would seem to be that uh, one of the concerns uh, of, uh, of secondhand smoke exposure is that potentially uh, not only is the individual who is in the proximity of a smoker being exposed to the cigarette smoke, but that person who is smoking is actually aerosolizing particles as they're smoking and, and exposing others uh, to uh, the particles that are generated with that aerosol. And if they happen to be uh, somebody who is in the preclinical phase, they're infected but not yet symptomatic, um, that would be a very concerning you know, way by which potentially transmission could occur. One of the things I did want to add to, to Taylor's uh, uh, answer was, so we, we do know that influenza uh, outcomes, uh, certainly within children, for example, influenza outcomes are worse with secondhand smoke exposure. There's actually pretty good and robust data. And there's really good data um, from uh, perhaps some of the best data from flight attendants who back in the 60s and the 70s had to work in environments in, in, in fairly confined environments uh, for many hours with smokers who went on to develop really severe chronic rhinosinusitis, chronic bronchitis, emphysema, and a number of chronic lung conditions really analogous to what you know, as if they themselves had smoked uh, throughout uh, their life. So it, there's, there's such a, a substantial body of evidence that links secondhand smoke exposure with uh, worse outcomes from respiratory, other respiratory infections, not uh, the SARS-CoV-2, um, as well as inducing uh, chronic lung disease that I think right now the assumption should be that secondhand smoke will adversely affect uh, uh, COVID-19 outcomes and, and really uh, should be uh, limited as much as possible. That's terrific. We are, we are towards the end of the fantastic podcast discussion that we are having on smoking tobacco and its effect on COVID-19. My final question to both of you I can guess from what you're going to say is what advice are you going to have for smokers, cigarette smokers during this pandemic? So my advice is the same that I give all of my patients. Uh, and that is there's no better time than the present to make an attempt to quit. Uh, and, and in fact, patients uh, need to be encouraged that they don't have to be completely committed to this idea of quitting. They just need to say, I'm willing to give it a try because we know the more times they make an attempt, the more likely they are to ultimately be successful. But um, I also say, if you're serious, if you wanna make an attempt to quit that's likely to be successful, then you need to, to, to have the two components that we've already talked about, um, behavioral therapy, a component, and the effective pharmacotherapy. 
And the behavioral therapy is simply uh, changing thoughts and patterns of behavior that have been ingrained for years and years around the use of this addictive substance. And to use pharmacotherapy, nicotine replacement therapy, bupropion or varenicline in an appropriate dose to reduce withdrawal symptoms and to reduce urges to smoke because we know that if you do that effectively, you reduce the risk of relapse. Uh, so you can get treatment from your doctor. You can seek treatment from a tobacco treatment specialist counselor. You can go online to reputable places like uh, mailclinic.org. Uh, we have a partner called the Truth Initiative, and they have a website called Become NX. Become NX is all one word. And if you search on that, they have quit plans. National Cancer Institute has a quit plan. So I'd say take advantage of these reputable online sources or talk to your doctor, get a referral to a tobacco treatment specialist, use effective behavioral and pharmacotherapy. There's no better time than now to try to quit. Yeah, I, I echo uh, Taylor's comments. I, I think the only thing uh, I add is a bit of the perspective, I guess. I tell patients that uh, there's, you know, understandably a lot of concern right now uh, because of um, uh, the pandemic. But to a large extent, uh, the pandemic is something that is outside of most of our control. Uh, we can limit transmission by wearing a mask and social distancing and doing all the other measures that are recommended by the CDC. Um, but one of the modifiable risk factors, one of the factors that patients can actually modify and improve uh, their outcomes, and not just from uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, but also in terms of general health and well-being is, is to stop smoking and maybe channeling that anxiety and, and figuring out ways by which to use that energy to really funnel it towards uh, stopping smoking during this time. It will not only um, improve uh, their um, potential of uh, outcomes should they get infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but also, and equally importantly, um, it will improve their long-term health. Thank you, Dr. Hayes and Dr. Vassello. We've been talking about the effect of smoking tobacco and using tobacco products on COVID-19. Just looking at the statistics today, 8.2 million cases all over the world and over 446,000 deaths all over the world. We don't know how many of these deaths could be prevented if we had quit smoking a while ago. Uh, this is a wake up call. The COVID-19 has really uh, challenged us in ways that we have never felt before. It's destroyed economies, destroyed jobs, and also families are left without their loved ones in many cases. But from the prevention standpoint, from the modifiable standpoint, what we heard Dr. Hayes and Dr. Vassello say is one thing we can do for ourselves if we are smoking is to have this conversation within ourselves and with our providers and loved ones about what can we do with tobacco cessation and how is it going to change our life. And maybe this podcast is going to steer us towards that direction. Thank you for your time, uh, Dr. Hayes and Dr. Vassallo. 
if you have enjoyed the mayo clinic podcast please subscribe stay healthy i'll see you back next week